Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I, heard, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like, the most, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jaconeth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has, 
no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of, of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Well, as you can tell by reading the last two chapters, we're almost done with our study.
in the book of Revelation. Uh, Next week, uh, because he happens to be in town, Mike Canham's going to be with us. Uh, So Mike is going to be speaking next week. Uh, But we've got, uh, I think, two more installments of the book of Revelation. We want to finish up this week as we look at what isn't there. And then uh, the next time we're together, we're going to take a longer look at what is there. And then we're going to kind of do an overview of the whole study in one Sunday morning. So maybe I should have done that at the beginning. We could have avoided the entire uh, stuff in the middle. I don't know. But we're going to go back and try and give you a feel for everything that went on before. Uh, Something that doesn't get stated very often, at least plainly, is that the Christian life is one of loving anticipation of Christ's return. Um, It's the one reason why Paul closes 2 Timothy, which was his last letter just before his death, uh, by turning Timothy's attention to that event. Um, Paul writes to him, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. <clears throat> Matter of fact, it's not in your notes, but if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians just quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There, uh, and I've referred to this often, is one of the most succinct uh, declarations of what it means to be a Christian that you'll find anywhere else in the Scripture. A description that's more than just, um, hey, believe this and you're done. And it comes to us in three parts. Uh, Paul also writing here to uh, the church that was at Thessalonica. Picking up in verse 9, he said that those, the people in the surrounding areas reported concerning us, reported to us, the kind of reception that we had among you when we came and preached to you. And notice these three things. How you turned to God from idols. That's the first part of becoming a Christian. You turn from those things that you used to worship and serve to the living God. Secondly, you, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Not just to know, but to act on it, to, to live a life that is in service to him. But thirdly, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So central to the true Christian uh, is this idea of Jesus' return and anticipation of it that it's core to what being a Christian actually is. And yet, and yet that can escape us over time. Um, I want to notice again in this passage in 2 Timothy that the, the reference is to those who loved his appearing. Those who are joyfully looking for that day are those who are rewarded. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. That's part and parcel of how we get that reward. Those, in other words, who are believing in and anticipating his return as the consummation of our joy and the blessedness. Those who are loving that will be rewarded, and those who are not loving his return will not be rewarded that way. And I do have to wonder uh, for myself and uh, for the greater church whether or not we are a people who truly can say we love the idea of his appearing. 
Are we, am I one who truly longs for that return of Jesus? Is it part and parcel of how I think about life as a whole? Is it part of my regular thought life? Do I groan with John, which we just read at the end of this book, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want that to be the case. Do I really want that end to be with him and to dwell in his glorious kingdom with him? Or do I, do I simply want him to make my life better now? Maybe I just want him uh, to be good to me and have some vague desire for an afterlife of nondescript ease. Uh, you know, the, the, it's been so uh, fluffed over the centuries that, you know, somehow we're going to be in this diaphanous state where we'll be on clouds plucking, plucking harps. And that's not exactly what scripture is going to tell us at all. Does escaping hell or just escaping my present sorrows eclipse the reality of really being with Jesus and with the redeemed? Have I made that separation in my, my thought process so that it really informs me? And this morning, I've got to tell you, it's my sincere desire to, and prayer that the Father will send the Spirit in a unique, unique way this morning to stir our souls up together to truly love His appearing. Not just know it intellectually or doctrinally, but, but love it and anticipate it in that way. And to let the anticipation of His return draw us out of all the other things of the world that are, we're constantly called to. To give us a great all-encompassing love for that. And I'm going to take a moment just to pray toward that end before we continue. Father, we are so easily distracted. There are so many other things that clamor for our attention. And often we do not consciously draw into that inner conversation that we have, that inner dialogue, the reality that Jesus is coming. And what that really means to us and, and why we ought to be looking forward to it. And so I ask for a renewal of passion for the return of Christ in the heart of every believer. And that if there are any among us who don't know Christ today, as they, as they hear these things unfolded, that they'll begin to desire it too by that work of your spirit and, and come to Christ in saving faith. So move on us today especially in this passage in a unique way. There's nothing we can say in the natural that can change a heart and mind. But oh, when your spirit moves, how you make these things real and gripping and how they change the, the whole perspective that we have on life itself. Renew that in us, especially for those who have let it slip over the years. Restore it in us today. Create it anew for those who don't have it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's my own conviction that the church as a whole has lost much of this emphasis on the return of Christ, at least the way that previous generations had it. Whenever Christians have suffered great persecution or trial or tribulation, then it's easy for your eyes to be fixed on the hope of Christ and say, well, all this will end when that happens. But when things are going fairly well, and let's face it, folks, you and I live in the top 1% of the world. Uh, when things are, are going fairly well, the anticipation of Christ's return isn't all that inviting. It means I might have to give up Netflix. 
And what am I going to do then? Uh, I, I might not even be able to use Facebook, or although that's almost passe now, it's, uh, uh, all that stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why we no longer intentionally look forward to Jesus' return and use that as a means for enduring the present trials and tribulations that we go through. Uh, one of those is just plain careless teaching about Jesus' return that over and over again has fixed arbitrary dates and made us look for certain signs and signals. And then when those things haven't come to pass, people have gotten discouraged, disillusioned, and said, you know, what is this? Does anybody really know what they're talking about? And so disappointment after disappointment has made people think, oh, maybe this is all just a fairy tale. It's there, I believe it, but eh, it's not really not really impactful to how I think and live my life. Whole denominations of believers have fallen into that trap. And, and then eventually you fall into a distrustful malaise over the entire topic. It's there, but it doesn't really occupy a place of fervor in the heart and mind. Another thing that moves us away from that is how easy it is in the face of constant bombardment from the news to be saturated with reports of political and racial turmoil and disasters and the things that are going on globally, things that are going on nationally, and, and we're just distracted by all of that. And of course, you know, we only have so much emotional capital. You can only care deeply about so many things and so many people. But if I have to care about every human being in every circumstance and every event at the same level, I just don't have that capacity. I'm a very finite being. God can care about those things, and I'm glad, because if he cares about them, I don't have to. I can worry about a much narrower scope of things, the things that he's told me to worry about, which is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'll take care of the other stuff. Make this your focus and take the burden off your back of being constantly distracted and weighed down by all those other things. And then there are our own individual and personal concerns. Those things can weigh on us too. And, and so the idea of Jesus' return just really isn't very material for us. So those of you that have been here for any period of time, you know I'm not going to break any new ground this morning. Uh, but I do hope by the Spirit's enablement to turn your eyes once again to this great promise of what's before us in the return of Christ and as I've mentioned a lot of times, uh, countless times throughout our series here in the book of Revelation, this book was written with the specific purpose in mind of buoying the hopes of God's people in difficult times, in facing trials and tribulations, and to refocus our hearts and minds so as to truly love his appearing. And those that have been with us for a long time, both in this series and in the past, when I have visited this same passage, you'll recall that I like to point out one unique feature of how John relates the information that's recorded in these two chapters. And personally, I can't be more pleased uh, than to be able to come back to it once again after having done so several times in the past about... Seven or eight years ago, I made a promise to myself that every time I got an opportunity to preach in another church or at a, a conference or an occasion where they didn't assign me a topic or a passage, that this would be what I would preach. 
I come back to this over and over again for myself, and I, I really pray it'll be refreshing for you as well. But John does something in these two chapters. He's done a couple of times before in the book, but he majors on it in these two chapters because he's receiving a revelation of things that are so unimaginable to his readers. He's seeing things that are so staggering that he spends the bulk of his time telling you what is not in the new heavens and the new earth than telling you what is. Because it's easier to tell you what it isn't. Uh, This is because the wonder of it is simply incomparable. And I've prefaced uh, this portion of scripture before. So uh, some of you who have been through this passage with me before, you're, you're allowed to nap this morning. But years ago on a business trip to New Orleans, Um, I was treated to some very interesting street vendor fare. My boss, who is a true culinary adventurer, who loves to go to China every year because he has an opportunity there to eat dog, um, not one of the things that I would be looking forward to, but he likes it. Uh, He's always told me whenever we traveled, order whatever you want, and if you don't like it, I'll eat it. Okay, so idiot that I am, I ordered gator on a stick. Never order gator on a stick. Just don't do it. And if you were to ask me what it tasted like, I would be at a total loss to compare it to anything else, to any other known substance, animal, mineral, or vegetable. It doesn't taste like anything else I've ever tasted or ever want to taste. It was inedibly abhorrent. Um, in every sense of the word, why you would grind up gator meat and put it in a sausage-like thing and put it on a stick and sell it to people on the street is beyond me. I was some sort of an insane thing they do in the South. They've had too much sun, I think. But it, it didn't taste like anything else I've ever tasted. And John, like that, is, is in this position in this book. He is so overwhelmed by this vision that he, there are 13 things that stand out to his heart and mind that he says, this, these are just not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. They're just, they're just not going to be there. I can't tell you as much of what it's going to be like as I can what it's not going to be like when I see the unspeakable glory and wonder of God laid up for those who are in Christ Jesus and love his appearing. So let's go to the first verse of chapter 21. So then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The first thing that he notices won't be there is any sea. Now, some have quipped. It's a kind of a, a common quip among pastors. We have a very short joke book, preachers, and so we all use the same ones. And, and it's often been said by many that, that the reason John saw no more sea at this point was because he had been exiled on this island of Patmos, and that's all he saw every day for the whole time that he was in exile, and he couldn't think of anything more wonderful than finally not having to look at the sea. Um, it's cute, but it's probably not biblical. Uh, more than likely, we have two more very interesting reasons why he would make this observation. The first is that he's making the statement that the new heavens and the new earth are so drastically different from the existence that we have now that it's a completely new economy even in terms of ecological life. 
For us, the sea is absolutely necessary. You know, we're, we're referred to as the blue planet because we've got all of this oceanic and, and, and fresh water all around us. And without it, we couldn't have life. But he says, you know what? Life exists on a different plane there. And there'll be no more sea. I'm not even worried about whether or not that. This is a wholly new existence not one that's dependent on the stuff we're dependent on here on this planet. But, but more importantly, as we've noticed all the way through our study in this book, um, especially in biblical literature and in apocalyptic literature, the sea, especially for the Jewish mind, almost always represents that which is turbulent, that which is deep and murky and dark and unstable and unsafe. Uh, so it is. Back in Revelation 13.1, uh, John wrote, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, and it had ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten crowns, and on its head were blasphemous names. The beast that terrorizes God's people and tries to conquer the earth rises out of the sea, out of the darkness, out of the turmoil. The Israelites were not a seafaring people. Almost the entire nation is inland. They have very little coastland. They didn't do a lot of sailing. That wasn't their thing. Matter of fact, you, you remember you, you, in school, if you ever looked at ancient maps uh, where, where they had scoped out as much of the land as they could, and then in the seas, there was always that little notation, there be monsters. Uh, yeah, yeah, because the, the sea is the, the dangerous place. You don't go there. But in the new heavens and the new earth, There will be nothing deep and dark anymore. Nothing unstable. Nothing mysterious and troubling and dangerous or threatening. That that entire concept is absent from the mind of the believer who's in the presence of Christ when we get there. Instead of a sea, John says, the thing that really caught my vision was, was the city. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. No more sea and instead of a sea, a city, a city that comes down out of heaven. I saw also the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then, and then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. We'll unpack those as we go. But I want you to see this just before we move on. This is something absolutely amazing to me, incomprehensible. I've used this phrase before. Bear with me. I know it's a little bit of a brain cramp, but hang in there. One of the things, and we have, we have uh, physics professors in our midst, Here's, here's, here's a, a physics bonanza. The thing about an infinite God 
as that he can give every individual his undivided attention at the same time. That factors into this passage. He, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Who he? Jesus. And what will he do? The picture is this, that once we are in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus himself will take upon himself a personal ministry to each and every one of us to wipe away every tear from our eyes. I can't even begin to contemplate that. And I noticed that that he'll do it. He won't assign this to each of us to do to one another. He won't even give this assignment to an angel or an archangel but he takes it upon himself to say, no, these are my people and each one of them, I will personally wipe every tear from their eyes. What a savior. What an expression that is. What a wholly different existence that opens up to us. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. We do a lot of weeping in this life. We have a lot of sorrow and grief. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But I want you, believer, to know that what Jesus will do in that hour is he will attend to you personally. And there is no grief, no sorrow, no suffering, no pain that he personally will not attend to you and wipe the tear from your eyes. What a sweet, sweet Lord he is. But secondly, death will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. No more death is the second thing he can't see. Now, how he can see it, I have no idea. All he does is he knows that's the state of things. He knows it's absent. But no one and no thing will ever die again. That is unimaginable to me. In our present state... Death is so much a part of our frame of life that an existence where there is no more death, whatever that is, is truly beyond our comprehension. John doesn't just say, as I said, know how he knows this, except that this is what the voice said from the throne in verse 2. In other words, this is just a revelation to his soul at this moment, and it's to cheer the hearts of the believers in Christ And for us to wonder at how in the resurrection of Christ he will at last deal with everything that sin introduced into this world because of the fall. I'm stunned. And not only is there no death, but he, God, now dwelling with mankind in his unmediated presence will personally wipe the tears from the eyes of his beloved children. No more death. One of the privileges, as well as one of the weights of being in the pastoral role over years, 21 now for me, is that you spend a lot of time looking at caskets. You spend a lot of time beside the bed of those who are perishing and then at last perish. And after a while, you get a little road weary. And you find yourself saying, Lord, I... I don't want another one. 
And he says, that day's coming. That day's coming. That day's coming when there will be no more death. And then also in verse 4, he will wipe away every tears from their eyes. Death will be no more and grief will be no more. Not only just no death, but, but not ever a reason again to mourn over anything. Grief is what most often attends loss. And so you, you have to stop and wonder, how can this be? Especially when, when we think that if not all of us, most of us, if not all of us, will have loved ones who won't be there. Some who will in fact be tormented in an eternal hell under the judgment of God. And how is it that we'll be able to be in heaven aware of that fact and not have any grief? I don't know. I just know that's what scripture says. I just know that's what he's promised. That once you are there, child of God, you will never grieve Again, over anything. No loss, no sense of loss in the way that we understand it now. I know that's what the text says. I know that's what was revealed to John by the voice from the throne. And I know that that's what we're to be assured of in that announcement. That there will never again be any reason to grieve. None. I love the fact that he says no more rather than just less. No more grief. And in that same verse, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more grief and there will be no more crying. No more crying of any kind. Think of all the things that produce weeping here, especially negatively. And each and every one of them will be gone forever. That will never be a part of your response system again. Can you imagine never shedding another tear again for all of eternity? I can't. Again, this is so far divorced from the human condition now, so other from what we experience day to day, that this is fathomless to me. And, And if the word didn't put it here, we'd be idiots to believe it could be so. But here it is over and over. And it's given to his saints that we, we can loosen a bit of the grip that this present life has on us. A life that is so distorted and so damaged by sin that it, it lulls us into believing that this is the way it's always going to be. But it won't be. Just as I mentioned a minute ago regarding there being no more death. When I stop and think about how many loved ones... I've lost in my 21 years here at ECF, both personally and in the church. It's easy for me to break into tears over each and every one and to break into tears over them collectively, and that is rightly so for here and now. But the day will come when not a tear will well up in our eyes again. And not only because death has been abolished, but for any reason. And the word that that John uses here, the word word that was revealed to him is is not the simple word for just just weeping. 
It's, it's a far more rich word. It, it carries with it the idea of crying out, like, like shouting out, like some of you have in times of trial or tribulation. How long, Lord? There'll be no more crying out of that nature ever again. It'll all be wiped away because Christ will be there and we'll be with him and, and he'll make everything new. That sound will never come through the walls of the New Jerusalem. The only sounds inside that city will be sounds of praise and rejoicing and glory and music and joy. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more and grief and crying and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. (laughs) No more pain. Give me a break. Skye, my wife, has had the blessed uh, experience of having almost no pain in her body on a day-to-day basis. I have never known a day without pain in my entire life, (laughs) physically. And certainly there's other pains, emotional pains and, and other things. But something on me hurts all the time. The sky says, I just need to find out what my sin is and that'll go away. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's brought that on. And, and, and as I look out at this, at this congregation, I think of the personal stories of many of you, of most of you, and how you have all suffered great injuries of different kinds over the course of your lives and and those here who struggle every day with chronic pain and and other conditions and I can only weep for joy as I have the pleasure to announce to you the truth of God's word that one day there will be no pain there will be no pain by accident or pain by disease or pain for any other cause. There will be no physical pain. There will be no uh, emotional pain. There will be no mental pain. There just will not be any pain. What a glorious place this must be. How can that even be? To no longer have any of that in our lives and to, and to never fear that it'll come back again. I don't know about you, but I want that. Your God and your Savior has heard your every moan and groan, your every creaking joint, and he will remove all of it from the smallest discomfort to the greatest incapacity. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Noah, No more pain. No more discomfort. All gone forever. It's what awaits you. Total restoration. In unimaginable ways. And he's saying, Christian, fix your eyes on this. Keep this in front of you. Otherwise, what's going on in this life will weigh you down and destroy you. But trust me, this is my word to you. This won't be there. There won't be any pain. And knowing how unbelievable that sounds, how completely contrary to to wisdom and to normal thinking that is, he's got to interject something in verses 5 and 7. And so the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said, listen, John, write these words. 
Write them. Make sure you put them down because they are faithful and they are true. I'm not lying to you. I'm not, I'm not giving you some line. I'm not leading you down the primrose path. This is solid and absolute. And let me tell you, I affirm it by the fact that I declare it is done. And I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I can say that. I spoke the worlds into existence. And when I say this is the way it'll be, this is the way it'll be. I'm the beginning and the end, and I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. And the one who conquers will inherit these things. Inherit what? Inherit what isn't there. What an an amazing confluence of words come into that. And why? Because I will be his God and he will be my son. Man, what an astounding revelation this is. No wonder John is, is just beside himself and has to use the negatives more than he can use the positives. He just can't describe this. And then in verse 8, something else won't be there. There will be no cowards, none who are faithless or detestable or murderers or sexually immoral or sorcerers or idolaters, and all liars. No, they won't be there because their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so here's the truth. All who live this way, all who are giving o- given over to bowing to cultural pressure to, be, uh, to avoid being identified with Jesus and what that might look like, We've we've talked any number of times here in the past few years about changing the name evangelical because it doesn't mean anything in our culture anymore. It doesn't mean anything except out in the streets. Often today, the word evangelical means Republican to most people rather than, than what it really means, people who believe in the evangel and the good news and who camp on the good news of the gospel and and live that way. But Some of us might bow to social and cultural pressure to avoid being identified with Jesus. I just read an article yesterday on an actor in Hollywood. I won't won't bring him up, but he just recently turned down a role where they offered him a million dollars because it would require him to be in a sexually explicit scene. And he said, no, I'm a Christian. I won't do that. Wow. There are those who will bow to the cultural pressure to avoid being identified with Jesus that way. They'll reject Christ and his gospel of grace. They'll prefer to live in sin instead of fighting against it. Hateful and murderous and sexually immoral and using, using God's religion as a way to, to get and to meet earthly ends. That's the idea behind sorcery, using spells and magic and incantation to change God's mind or to manipulate him some way. And worshiping whatever they value most in place of worshiping Jesus and contrary to the truth of all things revealed in the scriptures. All these will end in the lake of fire and will never enter this place and will never sully it or victimize its people again. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, if that's all this passage had to say so far, what we've covered so far, I could go home as a very happy camper. <laughs> my, my cup is full. I've, I just, man, I want that. But the truth is, 
God is a God of abundance. (laughs) And he doesn't stop the revelation here. He promises to provide for us far and beyond anything we can ask or think. So as though all we've looked at so far isn't enough, at this point, John's experience and the scene shifts dramatically. So far, he's been recording what he sees as one standing on the earth and seeing this new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. But now the scene shifts. He's taken up to a high vantage point. It's like being in a movie where suddenly the camera moves to an entirely different perspective. He's taken up to a a high pinnacle so that he can look down on the city as it descends in all of its splendor. And watch how he's told that the city and, and again, here's where we're at the end of the book where all of the metaphors begin to merge together. How the city is both the city and it's also the bride of the lamb. And who's the bride? What's the bride of the lamb? But the church, the body of believers. And all these three things get kind of mixed together in this one metaphor. And it draws on another scriptural pref- reference that, that both Paul and Peter have used in, throughout the scripture. Now, let me go back to Ephesians 2 for a second. Um, for through him, um, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Through Christ, we both, uh, talking about believing Jews and believing Gentiles here, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of God and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the picture we're about to see here of the New Jerusalem, that its foundation stones, right, have the names of the apostles. With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What? Again, he's talking about the church. Believers are assembled by the Spirit so that we grow together into this holy temple. And so in him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. That's where we're going. That's where he's taking all of this. Uh, Peter picked up on the the same concept in 1 Peter 2. And so as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that's what's happening in this picture. The the bride is the house, is the temple, is the believers, is the new Jerusalem. It's all being wrapped up together so that you're getting different concepts regarding who the believers are and what our role is. And so the narrative picks up in verse 9, and we won't spend time on 9 through 21. I'm just going to read it. We'll come back to it next time we're together. So then, now that I've moved to this high pinnacle, watch. One of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, he came and he spoke with me and said, come. I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. I'm I'm going to give you a, a whole new picture of it. And so he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And there he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Remember, he's being told he's going to see the church, the bride. And, and the city is arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone's clear as crystal, a jasper back then was probably our idea of a diamond, but they 
All diamonds back then were occluded. They weren't clear like we have them now. They were translucent. But there's light shining through it, and it's, it's beaming. And, and the city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the city had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. And and then the one who spoke with me, he had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out square. Its length and width are the same. And he measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. It's a fascinating idea. We think of cities as far and wide, but not high. Anyway, this city, its length and width and height are, are equal. And then he measured the wall, uh, which was 144 cubits, according to human measurement, which the angel used. And the building material of the wall was jasper, diamond, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Gold is never clear, but it can be shimmering. That's more the idea here. It's, it's not, not transparent, but, but shimmering. And, and in the light of God's presence, it's just uh, brilliant. And so the foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. Can you imagine a building where the foundation stones, and they're all exposed, nothing's underground, And the first foundation is jasper, and the second sapphire, and the third chalcedony, and the fourth emerald, and the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Absolutely astounding. And the twelve gates are twelve pearls. I'm going to come back to that next time. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Man, what a vision. Can you imagine? I mean, this this is bigger than anything George Lucas ever put into a Star Wars movie. All right? And it's it's sure a whole lot better than the the Borg, uh, the the cube there. Uh, Here's this, this city that's four square wide and long and tall, 1,200 stadia, somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 miles in all directions and he's seeing this and there's light inside of it and that light is shining out through these foundation stones of all these gemstones this this light emanating out into the universe what a staggering picture this must have been this poor guy trying to describe this who has never seen star wars how can he describe it you know he's really stuck by the language that he's got in front of him As I said, I hope to come back to this portion next time and unpack more of what will be there, but we need to to keep moving on and keep the pace moving or you're going to be here until tonight. So, uh, verse 21, something else he didn't see. I did not see a temple in it. And again, here the metaphors get mixed. I thought we just said that the body was the temple. The the body of believers was the temple and was the city, and that's true. But then he also says, I do not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. What's being indicated by that? Well, that we are so much one with him in Christ that there's no separation. 
There's this amazing unity between us. And and the idea here is that all worship will be conducted face to face. We won't go someplace to worship like we do now, gathering together on a Sunday morning or whatever. Worship will be our state of being. No temple because we'll dwell in the all-encompassing presence of God and the Lamb at all times. Our interaction with Him won't be geographical. It'll be permeation, all absorbed in His loving, infinite presence. And there's, again, there's just no way to describe such an existence. So with, with John, you and I are going to have to content ourselves with these negative statements that there will be no temple there because it will not be needed in that mode of existence. Years ago, uh, when the quartet was together, we had the opportunity to sing down in Washington, D.C. And that was the first time I got to see the Lincoln Memorial. And which is just a spectacular sight. And we're walking up the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I can only think, you know, this is what it must be like to approach God, to see this giant figure on this throne and all this whiteness and and beauty and coming up. No, it's going to go way beyond that. Way beyond that. No, it's just unfathomable. And in verse 23, there'll be no temple, but... The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. I thought he was the city. He is. I thought he was the temple. He is. I thought we were the city. We are. I thought we were the temple. We are. That's apocalyptic. It's, it's bringing all these things together and, and showing how one with him we are in all of this. But, but there the picture is there's no need for an external source of light in order to know and to comprehend. You and I need external light in order to see. We can't see in the dark. Not even my cat could see in total darkness. And cats are, you know, pretty close to it. They still need some sort of outside light to gather and to collect. But there, no, you don't need outside light nor the reflected light of the moon because of the nature of the glorious presence of God and the Lamb. The idea here isn't as much astrological as it is the idea that there's nothing hidden, nothing dark, nothing secret. Everything is open to view completely because we know the truth in Christ. Here and now, we know so little of what is real and true. I mean, with with digital editing today, you can make anybody say or do anything on film. There's nothing that's real. I mean, I thought for a while Jar Jar Banks was real. Apparently, he's not. No, no, that that won't happen there. There's no, no fooling us anymore. It makes me remember John's words in 1 John uh, 1.5 when he says, uh, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And there's absolutely no darkness in him. There's nothing that will ever again leave us in doubt or in fear. And, and especially what will be gone is any suspicion of God or his motives why he appointed what he did for our lives and the, and the experiences that we went through. All that, all that mystery will be gone. The end of all mystery in the negative sense. Nothing but the endless, revealed, pure, unmixed love of God for his people. Love as great, as great for us as the Father 
has for the Son. Does that sound blasphemous? Then let me take it out of John 17 when Jesus prayed and said, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Do you ever doubt the Father's love? His love is as great for the believing Christian as it is for Christ himself. Mind-boggling. And how often then we sometimes accuse him as though his love isn't perfect for us or that it wavers or that it goes up and down or it ebbs and flows and that isn't true believer. How little we can grasp that now, that he loves the believer as he loves Jesus. And if we could only live in that reality now, what doubts and fears would disappear? What an impetus to serve him in love and joy that would produce, knowing our security in him. That knowledge and sense of his love for us here and now is so tainted at times, so distant but not there. Endless, perfected love with no shadow of doubt or fear ever again. No need for the sun or the moon to perceive by because his light will flood us. And we're almost done, folks. And its gates will never close. Verse 25. No limited access. Brian talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. Being always before the face of God how there are times now when we go through seasons when God seems so distant, so difficult to to touch, to reach. And every believer knows times when that happens, when when God seems near, when he's so close and present during a time of, of prayer or study of the word or meditation or worship as we enjoyed this morning together. But then there's those seasons are brief. They come and they go. But not then, not there will have unlimited access to him at all times. Never will the gates need to be shut. And there's an additional symbol there. The the symbol of the gates never being closed or a wonderful way of saying will never be devoid of the sense of his wonder and of his sweet presence ever again. And its gates will never close there because it will never be night there. No more night. In the ancient world, when night came, the gates of the city were closed because they needed the safety of it. Invaders would come at night. When a city sleeps is when it's most vulnerable to attack. But tied with what we just saw, in the gates of the New Jerusalem, they never close, so there is never night there. No time of vulnerability. No time when the gates need to be closed because there's no enemies of ours there. And this may also have something to do with the wonder of the majesty of God and how we'll experience it, that it's uninterrupted and unending. Here, our greatest joys and happinesses are also punctuated by rest and sleep, but not there. Unending joy, uninterrupted delight, even for sleep. No night no fear, no vulnerability. All is perpetually safe and secure and imperturbable. What a contrast that is to the fate of those of the lost. 
where in chapter 14 and verse 11, we're told that their torment is relentless, that, it's, that it goes on day and night forever. Part of the doom of the unbeliever is the conscious passing of time in their punishment. And part of the believer's eternal joy is that time no longer holds the same ebbs and flows, but is a perpetual joy. And then in 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean, perpetual, undefilable purity. Nothing will ever be allowed in which will spoil its beauty or purity or perfection. The glories of heaven cannot be spoiled by anybody or anything. And nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. No one who in any way is contrary to the holiness and perfection of God, so that with that, never any kind of perversion of the truth and of the communication of the glory of God, it'll always be perfect. Jesus told us he himself is the truth and the life and the way. And and anything that obscures who and what he is in its fullness is detestable and contrary to him. And nothing of that will ever be had in the new Jerusalem. Never. And then the last one, which is kind of the sum of it all. And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. No more curse. Every last aspect of God's anger with sin in relation to us is completely and forever banished in its totality. Man. Everything we experience here and now in this present world, every discomfort, every grief, every pain and loneliness and disease and violence and distress and sorrow and worthy and the unknown and fear and doubt and unbelieving and besetting sin, everything committed by us and perpetrated upon us is every single bit of it temporary because it's connected with the curse when man fell, and it will all be swallowed up in the wonder and the glory of the unveiled presence of Christ and our King. No more curse. All gone. That's why I love Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love Him. And now... God has revealed them to us by the Spirit. That's what's happened in these two chapters. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And even at this, in our sin-broken state, we can only glimpse the smallest particle of what this is all about. Remember Jesus' words in John 14? In my Father's house are many rooms. I love that. The many mansions is probably a mistranslation. The idea is many rooms because we'll live in the same house. We won't live in separate mansions. No, you won't get to be a misanthrope there. You'll have to actually live with people. These people. Same people that you sometimes don't like right now. But if they're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we're all going to live together. Get used to it. All right? I know that old old poem... um, 
To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's another story. That's, that's not the way it's going to be there. Um, in my father's house are many rooms, and if not, I would have told you. But I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. It's been quipped by many that it took, it took God only six days to create the known universe. If it has taken him over 2,000 years to prepare the new Jerusalem, what must that be like? Staggering. Beloved, we haven't even begun to comprehend it, but he's promised it. He's revealed it to us by his spirit, here in his word and by the conviction of his spirit that it's absolutely true. And it belongs to everyone who who is trusting Jesus as their sin bearer. Absolutely amazing. And because time's gotten by us, I'm going to tell worship team, you won't have to come up for a closing song. We'll just close in prayer and dismiss. But I have to ask you, I have to ask every one of you, are you one of those who will inherit this new heavens and new earth? Do you personally know Christ as your sin bearer? Have you trusted in his atoning sacrifice on your behalf and bent the knee to him as your sovereign Lord? Is that true for you? If not, none of the glory we've just rehearsed belongs to you. The Bible describes a far different end for you, just as certain as, and eternal as this is for the saints. But it can be yours. You can come to him today. You can own your sin before him and ask for his forgiveness and by faith receive the gift of eternal life and, and the cleansing of your sin of your rebellion against his right to rule you in spirit, soul, and body. You can become part of the family of God as you run to Christ for his forgiveness and cleansing. So won't you call on him today? Believer, I don't know what you're going through today. I know what I'm going through today. But I don't know what I'll go through tomorrow. I don't know what you'll go through tomorrow. But I know this. These are the things he's prepared for us. That's where I want to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we are caught by how unimaginable all of this is. How it defies John's ability to describe it clearly and far outstrips my ability to describe what John couldn't describe. It just isn't doable. It's so overwhelming, so staggering, so transcendent that unless your spirit gives us the capacity, enlarges our hearts and minds to drink it in, it'll just kind of lay on the surface like an oil slick. But we want it to penetrate our hearts and minds. We want it to be part of the absolute joy and, and comfort in the here and now as we face what's immediately before us, but anticipating the full promise coming to pass in due time. So take my brother and sister in Christ today and encourage them powerfully in it. Bring it home to roost in our hearts so that we lavish 
in the wonder of your love and grace and what you've provided. And Father, if there are any here today who don't know Jesus savingly, that the way Paul described so much of salvation that he wanted to make the Jews jealous to run to Christ, I want them jealous this morning to flee to you for what you've provided, what you've shown us here in this passage. Open it to their hearts and minds that they might flee to Christ and know forgiveness and the new birth and the transformation that comes by your saving grace. We pray these things for your people, for all here in Jesus' name.